If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Hopeful Hints, hosted by Dr. Tara, guides and supports those on the often challenging and isolating journey of women's health concerns and infertility. There's a particularly powerful episode that you should check out called All Things Endometriosis, which dives deep into understanding the condition to help the many women who suffer from endometriosis and have no idea they have it, and healthcare providers who are uneducated about it, making the diagnosis process so difficult. Check out Hopeful Hints on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. This show seeks to engage our belief systems around health, what makes a real health balance, and how we sustain it while giving consideration to the ways we support it in our relationships, our communities, and our ecosystems. It's also about how our policies and life choices affect our health and sense of well-being. My hope is that these conversations clarify what often seems complicated or breaks it down into small and manageable tasks to create more engagement at all levels of our experience. Today's guest is Katrina Mitchell, and she is no exception. But before I get to her and the topic of how to design for social impact, would you consider supporting the show and its mission to build health into our daily lives? I love being your diplomat in this pursuit of wellness for all of us on the planet, but I really do need your support. I appreciate the community happening around this project, but we could really use more financial support. And uh, all the people on the podcast are, uh, that are doing all this work will also be benefited. Nearly every guest I've had on the podcast is extending themselves to help better some aspect of our world. And by supporting the podcast, you would also help support the work they are doing and getting their good work made public. Would you consider committing just 5 to $10 a month in support? Think about it for a second. The small gesture collectively can make a lasting impact. And for those of you donating at higher levels, I promise I'll make you or your organization known here on the show. Uh, only if you want, of course. So take a moment here and go to patreon.com forward slash highway to health and sign up today. This is something you can do right now, and I will wait uh, to start the show until you're done. I have to tell you that I have some amazing guests lined up for the rest of the summer and through the fall. I had four meetings this week with potential guests, and they're one after another. Just each of them blew me away. And it's in in incredibly encouraging to know that these people exist in our community, and I'm excited to share them with you in these upcoming weeks. My guest today asks you to consider whether it's possible to design modern life to minimize waste and harm to our environment and to individuals. I have to admit that I never really thought about design from this perspective before. Katrina Mitchell, my guest today, uh, presents a very strong case for having uh, someone like herself in the process to challenge context when it comes to problem solving and solutions design. She's the co-founder of Picture Impact, a social design studio that seeks to expand thinking imagine new futures, and chart a course to get us there. They are a group of pragmatic idealists grounded in reality and energized to impact our social capacity. We started out here talking about our kids and, and how we use technology and how the technology has become the, the scapegoat of what we perceive to be this great modern problem for parents and their children, in the same way that, say, television and souped-up cars were in previous generations. Here's my conversation with Katrina Mitchell. This 
question of, oh, screen time, not screen time. I'm like, it's not screen time. It's the nature of the screen time and why they're using it and when are they using it, you know, and what is my, like, what is my noticing as a parent? Like, have I just, like, let her, like, go and be and not be related to me, you know? I mean, that can happen about anything. Right. You know, this morning we had a a conversation because we had a, a limited amount of time to get out the door and there was lots of things that needed to be done, right? That she interprets as parenty things. Right. Like packing my lunch <laughs> right. and, you know, <laughs> attending to like what papers need to go in my backpack, right? <laughs> and I'm like, but you see, these aren't, these aren't my things, right? Yeah. They're your things to attend to. So, um, so she kept going back in her room to like, you know, play with her Legos and then like play with the dolls. And so I kept... Like, all morning, like, every five minutes, I'm like, so could you come back in the kitchen and actually, like, finish <laughs> this task, right? Um, and and so it was, like, it was a little frustrating. So I just kind of, as you know, in my parenting, I just kind of kept letting go of the frustration, like, this isn't the time, right? So right. I'm in a hurry. This is not the time to have this conversation. Yeah. But then when we get in the car, I said, did you notice that I had to come back and, like, keep asking you to come back in the kitchen? Like, what did you think about that? And she's like, well, I thought I was done. I'm like, so you made a sandwich. <laughs> how did you think you were going to get your sandwich to school? Because you just left it out on the counter, yeah. right? Like, is it going to, how is it going to get into your backpack? And she's like, oh. I'm like, so whose job was that? Engage, to put it engaging into Engaging with the process. Right? Oh, yeah, totally. And so, um, you know, the same question like what you were saying with, the, you know, clients that come in with the sensory stuff. It's like, where are we defining what the, what the actual problem is, yeah. right? And I'm, I'm very curious about that because... Because problem definition carries with it judgment sometimes, oftentimes. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, and, and, and projection. Yeah. Like children are problematic. Like it's a, such a problematic problem that children have, you know, sensory issues and, you know, because of the screens. Like, huh, interesting. Why is that? A, like what's the problem about that? Yeah. Right, because we do like as a company, and you know, in, in my prior consulting work, we do a lot of work around theory of change. Right, so people, yeah. you'll say, well, what, you know, what are you trying to change? And people will say, oh, um, school attendance. Like, okay, tell me about that. Why is that a problem? Like, mm-hmm. school attendance is a thing. It's yeah. not. It's neither good nor bad. Yeah. But it, does it have an impact? You know, so yeah. always trying to get people to like actually define what the actual problem is about it. Sometimes it's not the problem they think, you know, oftentimes it's not the problem we think mm. things are. So I, I just think I, that part of my work, I find very interesting, actually defining the problem. We were just doing design work this morning around agricultural contracting. I know it sounds like, what? No, it's, <laughs> I, I, I get it. Yeah. And trying to figure out... Um, so there's a lot of problems with contracting, right? But what's the problem in the actual contract? So we were just only we're going to narrow our bandwidth to the to the actual to the contract actual instrument of the contract, right? And okay. so we're dealing with smallholder farmers that are low literacy, and you know, so our work is primarily you know kind of based around understanding their context and being able to. Um, use pictures and stories and other mechanisms in order to kind of deliver the same content gotcha. right? and, and have it be interactive in a way that they understand. So um, Americans with high levels of literacy don't understand contracting. 
<laughs> so I, I, I can't read instructions. Right. <laughs> so the likelihood that like a farmer, you know, might fully understand what they're getting themselves into is pretty low. And so we're yeah. looking at contracting. Well, in our conversation, we kept coming up with like, oh, well, that's not a thing that actually goes in the contract, but it is it is a conversation that needs to happen and there's some understanding that needs to happen out of it, but that's not part of this problem mm. that we're trying to solve. So yeah. as, as you start to narrow kind of the problem and really define the problem, um, it does some really interesting things, you know? Huh? So, okay. Yeah. So, so, so take me back to the beginning of, of your sort of process mm-hmm. here. You, you started, started out and did you go through like a, a, a BA or BS for, for arts or actually i have a um i have a bachelor's of science in art okay yeah, which is an unusual a little bit of an unusual where, where was thing. it um i did the first part of my uh education at cooper union which um is in new york some people yeah, know yeah. it's really tiny yeah. um and that's a fascinating it's a did fascinating you, arts program where, where, did you grow up out there or nope i grew up here okay yeah in minnesota mm-hmm. okay yep yep um what led you to that place yeah i mean it's in some ways, the most prestigious art school, which isn't why I chose it, yeah. you know. Um, I chose it because, a number of reasons, um, the way that they teach art is really interesting, or the way that they structure their program is really interesting. It's mm. kind of like, um, you know, it's very small, and um, because it is hard to get into, there, you know, it tends to attract people that are very dedicated yeah. to that yeah. work. And then... Um, the foundation year, the first year, you're you're put together with ten to fifteen other students, and you do every single class with them. Oh, that's that's awesome. So after about two weeks of doing every single class with them, all your critique and all your work gets shortcutted, right? Because you've developed this like hyper intimate relationship with a group of people who are, you know, all super competitive, all super talented. <laughs> so you know, right? So it's Type A art school. Yeah. yeah so yeah. Th- so you can come to you know stuff, and people are like this. This thing is crap, and I know it's crap because you didn't have it at 10 p.m. last night, and now you're here like presenting it as if it's like some like amazing thing. And I happen to know that it's just like you know that's the way good stuff happens sometimes. Well, I, I, sometimes. that's been that's been my excuse, anyways. I'm, I'm bit, Which they probably wouldn't say if it was good. Procrastination is a bit of like there's right. th- there's some stuff that has to sort of it can. swirl around for a little bit before you finally get pressured to, to get it out there in the it world. Can. Everybody has a process. That's right. <laughs> Everybody has a process, and sometimes it looks like that, and sometimes. It, but anyways, I mean, like. Likely it was terrible. <laughs> right? Um, just that kind of level of transparency. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that is what attracted me there. I didn't know that when I, you know, applied. Obviously, that's kind of like an insider secret. But yeah. um, but the way that the, the program is structured and that every, you know, in, in the first year, unlike other art programs, you can't declare a medium. Okay. Everybody studies everything. Yeah. And it's like an open, fair game. So I went in as a painter. I became a photographer. Oh, um, interesting. I love printmaking and books and, you know, uh, very different than I thought. I was back in, back in the day of, of dark rooms and... Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I can print in black and white and color. <laughs> like fashion dark rooms. <laughs> I could also use Photoshop. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So, um, so I went to Cooper Union and then, um, and then I chose to... Uh, take a break um, 
part of that was just a kind of a mental health thing. Mm-hmm. It, while the school is free, um, living in New York is not. And I was not, <laughs> as I know well. <laughs> while I get scholarships, I was not. You know, I didn't come from a wealthy background, so yeah. I had to work um, at the same time. So the pressure of Working in New York and navigating new social circumstances and the pressure of that particular very aggressive program, um, and then just life. You know, what did you, you do for a job there? I worked for um, what at the time was Kinko's. Okay, um, yeah. FedEx office. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> had a long, uh, long career with them. Um, at the time, that job, it no longer it no longer looks like this at all. I mean, I don't really know because I haven't talked to anybody in a long time, but yeah. At the time, it was like um, you were really leading the way. I mean, people didn't have this, like the late 80s, you yeah. know? People didn't have printers at home. And, you know, big, these big, you know, Xerox yeah. copying machines were like kind of magical. Yeah, right? Totally and some of them even were kind of like a little bit between, you know, a little steampunk, little like, you know, you had to. You know, we had ones that were jerry rigged with like paper clips inside. I mean, so they look like these amazing like <laughs> machines on the outside, and then when you like open the cover, and there's like yeah. a jam and papers like flying everywhere. I mean, I literally have had those that situation. I, I worked in, in in college. I worked in the media yeah. center in the library, <laughs> so I, I was there was always something that was like, no, you just get you hit the side like this and push that button after you're done. It'll go <laughs> exactly right, <laughs> and it it felt kind of funny because you know, anyways, it's one part magic. <laughs> Lots of part scotch tape. Um, um, yeah, so I worked at Kinko's, and I worked at the Kinko's in New York. It was the only um, – there were two of them there, I think, one way up by Columbia and then the, the one down by NYU. Okay. So we had – we were in the epicenter of every nightclub, so we printed thousands oh, of yeah. nightclub flyers. It was primarily I what spent we some did. time in Kinko's because I, I had a band yeah. in, in the 90s, exactly. and so <laughs> it's constantly in there. Exactly. So it was, you know, I mean, it was kind of an interesting job. Um, so what did you do after your break? Do you... Yeah, I mean, for my break, I went to Australia. I'm Australian-born, and I went there to, you know, see mm. that part of where I came from and hang out with my dad and travel. Um, it's a fascinating country. And I, while there, I worked for his company, which is also kind of really interesting. He was, at the time, building high-speed custom aluminum boats. So I... Learned what boat building looks like and um, got to work on the shop floor with welders and oh, wow. a huge brake press and all kinds of like fun and interesting things. So seems, seems like a good step from art school, actually. It, it Constructive. It, it kind, kind of, of did. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Mostly because I, I, I like making things. And so it really fit making, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um. So where do you where, so so you were over there for like a year and then yeah just under a year and then I came back and I um just the timing I missed the timing to get into school so yeah. then I ended up working here for a year um two and then I went back to school um at Madison UW Madison oh yeah and part of the reason that I had chosen that um is that one of my frustrations with Cooper Union while well, it's fantastic um it's like Inside the arts program, it's arts only. Mm. You know, while they have a great engineering program, at the time, there wasn't a lot of crossover. And you don't have liberal liberal arts sort of stuff happening around you. Right. It just isn't a big, it's just not a big school. At the time, I think now they have more like alliances with other other places. 
Um, but and, at the and time, Madison seems like a great place for college yeah. in general, and it's a, it's a great city for. It is a great city. I think for for I had a few friends who were there, yeah. so I spent you know a couple of different weekends, and I, I just I, I liked the city. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was great. It was an easy place to sort of get around, walk around, bike around. Yeah, just has a little bit more of a liberal sort of creative vibe too. It does. Yeah, I think um, I mean it's a neat city. It's a, it's a great school. I mean, it's really great for just well-rounded academics yeah. in general, and then. Um, their art program, their art department is fantastic. I mean, they they still, yeah. I, I had the privilege of of then integrating with master students, so also that's the you know Cooper's bachelor's only. Okay. And so it was really nice for me to be able to you know have more range and and see what people are doing. What was your What was your major then at at UW? It was the Bachelor of Science in Art, so okay. that's where I switched from like a BFA to a BS. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, which let me take physics and calculus yeah. and the history of Buddhism <laughs> yeah. and race, class, and gender and the American, you know, social history or whatever it was called. You know, so I, I got a much more kind of rounded picture of yeah. um, life and academics, which really suited kind of I came out of uh, a very academically rounded um high school and so it really was like oh this is this feels more yeah this feels more more at home yeah more at home yeah 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 I, yeah i loved my time there did you did you have any sense of what you wanted to do with it what when you went back came back from australia no, i really didn't it's, it's it's almost kind of i yeah. i i had some sense that i, I was an english major which i'm I'm, I'm now using because I'm writing again, but <laughs> yeah. I st- went to, took a hard turn into science after and got completely into, I would, it's all fiction for a long time and then had to get completely back into like, you know, the, yeah. the science of, of healing process and anatomy and just deep, deep science. Yep. And I'm just starting to come back to like, you know what, I kind of want to just explore things that don't have anything to do with anything concrete at all. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot to learn there stories are nice yeah, yeah. i think um i mean i you know where i worked at you know copy shops uh, kinko's when i was at cooper um at madison while well, i could have continued that um i didn't i um, had kind of transitioned into um cooking and baking as a secondary kind of get mm. myself through part, partly because the hours and partly because it's just a different level of making right yeah, like yeah. so i just really love making things yep. um and while there's making for sure at that time in the copy world i kind of worked there long enough that now i was like manager and that was no longer making and right. so it was like sadness <laughs> right it's, you know counting money and managing people is not the same as like no. making really great stuff mm-hmm. right so I really oh. enjoy making stuff. And so I did get into um, cooking and baking and worked at a number of restaurants in Madison um, while I was in school there. And then um, when I graduated, I, I just didn't have a lot of grounding in, like, what could you do with this degree? Yeah. And yeah. I, I don't know if I was failed by the career services people or, <laughs> like, what happened there or that time. Or maybe I just didn't want to listen. Who knows? Yeah. Um, But I just continued kind of on the, you know, working in bakeries and things like that. And I eventually kind of found my way into the photo industry through some just chance, really. Um, And that really suited me because it had making in it. It had 
you know, some art- artistry in it. It yeah. has, you know, some lots of fantastic people in it. Um, what kind of work? Well, I'm mostly, so producers or the photography work that happens here in town is a lot for Target. Okay. So just um, a lot of Target work, yeah. So marketing, marketing, advertising stuff. Yep, marketing, okay. advertising things. Yeah, and I worked for a variety of photographers, some of whom worked more on the advertising, international kind of you know, client realm, and um, some that worked almost entirely for Target and doing, you know, circulars and catalogs and yeah. you know all of the packaging and yeah, many things that Target does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's quite it's quite a machine, um, and. Really, kind of by the time that that you know that I got around to um, going to grad school, um, I was a bit disenchanted by that industry. I'd start. I mean, I've had a long. I don't know. I mean, I could probably even trace it back to childhood. Uh, like we, I, my mom, my grandmother's Scots, uh, Scottish background, Scots Irish background, and. Um, was super thrifty mm-hmm. and in life and was a gardener, had, you know, a deep connection to the land in that way. She wasn't like, um, she wasn't like that matronly, gardeny, you know, type of grandmother that you're probably picturing. She wore Vogue dresses, had cocktail parties, <laughs> and was connected to the land. Yeah. Very stylish. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I don't know, like some part of me has this like this kind of waste consciousness that seems to just be kind of embedded in my yeah. like, ancestry. Yeah. Like nothing goes to waste. My grandmother could cook dinner out of almost nothing. Yeah. Like you can literally look at her cabinet and be like, there's no dinner there. And then it would be like this amazing dinner. You're like, I don't know how you did that. Like, did you go find a chicken down the street? Like, where did it come <laughs> from? Right. She's just amazing that way. Um, it was in the back of the freezer, right. and there was just a couple of things that some seasoning just that she knew about. She had sitting in the cupboard. Exactly. So, I mean, you know, thankfully now in my advanced age, I inherited that quality, yeah. so I could make something from nearly nothing. Yeah. Um, Very important for as, as an entrepreneur. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's super important. And I think I had a lot of training even from the photographers that I worked oh, for yeah. making stuff out of nothing all the time, yeah. like taking, you know simple things and all of a sudden you're like that doesn't even like in real life that doesn't look like anything related to what's on the camera right so um so yeah a lot of a lot of training in my life making something from nothing um so you know my my interest in kind of um being frugal in life or having a relationship to the land and to life that is minimalist and simple was not working well for working in advertising. Oh, yeah. And so um, I just found much, you know, greater and greater dissatisfaction with that that work. Yeah. And while there are fantastic social advertising firms, yeah. I just couldn't even see it at the time. I was so frustrated with that whole, you know, so the whole baby bathwater situation was happening <laughs> yeah. around that. Um, and a, a, that and my kind of interest in this idea of design and our human capacity to design um i fundamentally don't understand waste yeah in our society I just don't understand why we have garbage at all mm-hmm. um i 
think it's one of the biggest design flaws and why we aren't all just like, that is such a ridiculous design flaw. Why does it even exist? So, um, so I went into a master's of urban and regional planning at the Humphrey here, um, which is a fantastic school. And, um, my focus, I've never had an intention to be an urban planner. What I was interested in is understanding partly this question about if we have this ability to design what's getting in our way in these really large systems. Mm -hmm. So cities are these large systems with many, many players. And they have to do this amazing social marketing with with their constituents, right? Mm -hmm. So if you live in Minneapolis or whatever city you live in, um, that city has a 100-year vision and a 50-year plan and a 25-year plan and a 5-year plan. And they have to get you on board with a vision you personally are never going to see come to fruition. Right. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you're going to live to be 140. <laughs> right? I, I'm, 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 I'm healthy-ish. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I have to kind of like buy into this ethos of what our city could look like in 100 years yeah. in order to withstand the fact that they have now closed. I mean, it's not the city. This is feds. But, you know, closed the West 94 exit ramp off of 394 that is making my commute every day 20 minutes longer yeah super irritating what's so what, what why did they do it is it part of construction or is yeah it, they're oh, okay. re i don't know they're resurfacing or reconfiguring mm-hmm. somehow yeah. that that exit and it's taking you know it's not like a weekend quickie like no, we're gonna resurface it's like some major construction probably to make it safer yeah um and so, you know, it's it's those kinds of things I was really interested in, in inside of urban planning. It's it's this huge systems work. It's super complex. You know, you can't just easily solve a problem like affordable housing. There's It's tied to different things. Right. You're, and, you're you know, looking at so many different aspects of, of things, economics yeah, and exactly. social structures and things. Exactly. So, so that's what my, you know, degree focused on and, you know, it didn't, what I exactly wanted to study didn't ex- exist quite at the time. And so um, I also did a lot of environmental planning and some mm. community um, economic development. And then um, my graduate research was on waste pickers in San Pedro Sula, Honduras. So understanding in 2008, um, the global waste market was at an all-time fiscal high. So waste was being purchased um, for a lot of money. Like the highest ever, um, plastic bottles in particular, but other waste as well. And then, um, then the market crashed. And so by 2009, by the end of 2008 and into 2009, waste was all of a sudden <clears throat> at one of the lowest points that it's ever oh, been. Oh, wow. And so I was interested to know how much access to market information did the pickers on the dump have and what, how did that affect their agency their decision where and when to sell what they picked um the whole kind of ecosystem from their perspective of hiring of people to do the work in the first place too i'm sure yeah i mean they're informal workers so they're all you know it's them and their family up on a dump site and so um it's fascinating work and um you know really did understand a lot about people's access to information and how that made a huge difference 
for them. So the so so you were down there. Was down there. And how how do you study? Like, what are you out there picking with them? And are you? Uh, I didn't pick. Um, I did go up on the dump site. Yeah. yeah. So I spent quite a few days on the dump site. Um, it's a big dump, uh, big open facing landfill. Um, and what's the selling process like? What what happened? How did how, yeah. how do they get rid of stuff? Well, it's really structured. Um, it was more structured than I thought. It's controlled um, by, in their case, it's controlled by the gangs primarily. Huh. Um, who gets access to the dump site, what they're allowed to pick, how much they're allowed to sell it for, if they can take it off and get a better price, um, et cetera. It's all very regulated through an informal system, mm-hmm. which turns out to be a good thing, actually, for the pickers because without the gangs there you always need to have some kind of a regulation on a system that otherwise would have a completely open market right because you you have to have some way to limit it so in in many places waste picking is limited by stigma Mm -hmm. that's not the problem in honduras and so if you want to pick waste and you actually want there to be a market for it that's not just zero eventually it'll just go to zero if everybody's doing it um, then you want some kind of limitation. So right. it was uh, while it's an antagonistic relationship, yeah. it is also some part of recognition that I need you to scare off other people so that I can be up here picking. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I think, I, I, I don't know, the, don't quote me on this, but I know in New York I had a friend who tried starting a restaurant at one point and and bar and he got he got scared off a little bit because it was the mafia that, yeah. that ran the... Uh, Yep. garbage <laughs> pickup and big deal. there were lots of issues around that and i, and I think even around mm-hmm. getting your your liquor license so. yep. yeah yeah so how. yeah so i was up on the dump um i mean it's it like i said it's structured like women are allowed to pick certain things very gendered so the women can pick you know glass they can pick fabrics um sometimes they're allowed to pick plastic bottles mostly men or boys are allowed to pick the plastic bottles because they have the highest value of that kind of thing um and then they have to sell it on the dump site to the um to the gangs and and what is it being purchased for what are they what are they reusing like plastic for just to sell into the export market okay so from the dump site you know they don't have recycling like like we, right. we have right so from picking it off the dump site then um, it's sold, you know, usually to a, a truck to to the um, the gangs like have these the trucks. It's a little bit challenging because it's the trucks that brought the garbage in, and then they bring the recycling out. Mm. Anyways, um, they load up the trucks. They then sell it to a, a different aggregator. Usually, sometimes they'll sell it directly to an exporter. Okay, um, there's a couple exporters there. So then the exporters, you know clean it, shred it, sort it, and sell it by that container load to China usually. So so this was a private project that you got in? Was this part of something you developed or mm-hmm. was this something, okay. Yeah, and it was hardly self-developed. Um, it was part of, um, it was part of my graduate work, um, but then it didn't, it, it actually didn't end up being published under that. Um, it hasn't been published to today. That's a different story. Why? But, um, yeah, I mean, it, I was interested in that I, you know, had some structure around that particular study, but it was entirely self-generated. Yeah. So, so what did you learn from that? Yeah, um, lots of things. 
um, one, people can withstand lots of different things in life. I mean, myself included, right? Like yeah. a dump site is not necessarily a terrible place. Um, you have to get over the initial kind of physical reaction or some, you know, judgments that you have about, about it. But then, you know, up there you find children playing, you mm -hmm. find, you know, like there's a whole ecosystem up there and they're just participating in it. Like they're not the bad people. Nobody's, nobody's good or bad inside. It's just a system yeah. at play. And so being able to kind of understand that that's the way that most of life is, yeah. there's not good people and bad people. They just, everybody is just working the system in the way that they know to work the system. There's there, there are, there are constraints or there are stigmas or whatever it is uh, around us that mm -hmm. sort of keep us in these ways of thinking and ways Sometimes. of doing things. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and so where does design fit into all this? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. So like, um, I'll give a short story. I always tell this story about this guy. Um, and there's a reason for it. So, uh, one of the questions that I would ask, people is did they understand did they know like do they have any idea why the price like why they last year they got eight lampiras a bottle and now they're only getting one lampira bottle yeah. like you know any ideas most of them not a clue no no answer to that question he um he actually picked a different thing so he was at the top of the food chain as far as like being able to pick stuff off the landfill so he was collecting heavy metals uh brass aluminum copper Mm, not steel, but all the pre more precious metals. Um, so small quantity, but higher value. Yeah. And I asked, you know, I asked him if I could follow him off the, the site and ask him some questions. And we're weaving through the little community that's next to the, the site. And we get to his house, which is enti made entirely out of scrap metal. And he tells me that he feeds 14 people off of what he collects on the dump. Wow. That's a lot of people to feed. So... You know, I'm asking him all the kind of the standard questions and, you know, about life and stuff. And then I asked him, I said, do you know, have any idea, like, what about the pricing? And he says, oh, yeah, well, you know, uh, Beijing was really getting ready for the Olympics. And so they were buying a lot of um, steel and they really needed just a lot of steel. So they were yeah. buying all of this, like, you know, recycled steel from all over the world and they're collecting it. But they, but they stopped, you know, needing the steel in October of 2008 because yeah. they were done when they needed, you know, needed it for. And... Um, and so that crashed the steel market and like right about the same time that because of the subprime crisis, Americans had stopped buying goods from Taiwan. And so Taiwan in turn stopped buying recycled materials from the United States uh -huh. to, you know, make man, you know, remanufacture goods and balance the trade. And he goes on this like long, I mean, he just really long detailed macroeconomics of global trade of waste. And I'm looking at him. And I'm thinking about the 14 people that he feeds and, you know, the, his house made out of scrap metal. And I'm like, how do you, like, I mean, you're totally right, but how do you know that? Yeah. He said, oh, I watch the BBC. I thought you were going to say YouTube. <laughs> no, the BBC. Yeah, wow. Like, okay. I'm like, well, like, why? And he said, well, it's my job. I want to know about yeah. my job. He's doing his research. Yeah. He's like, I need to know where the price, where the prices are going, so that I know when it's useful for me to to get to pay a taxi driver to put all my stuff yeah. in the taxi to take it to the exporter. And then he's like, I need to know what the global price is so I can negotiate at yeah. the other end. Like that's you're a really good businessman. It's business, and he's got fourteen people to feed. He's yeah. he's stakes are high. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's tight. Yeah, for sure. So. 
I mean, that what design-wise comes out of that is the idea that here's somebody with a couple things that the people maybe on the site don't have. So one is access to information, mm-hmm. right? And how he got the access to information, I mean, he was very self-driven, right? Yeah, right. But it, you don't need to be, yeah. right? So access to information makes a big difference, gives you leveraging power, does a lot of things um, around that. Um, I think the other thing that he had is enough business understanding about business to know about timing, like timing the market. Uh, like yeah. when do you flood the market? When yeah. do you wait? You know, and, and he picked a thing around which he could wait. Like it's small enough. He doesn't have to amass. Like bottles are giant, right? And yeah, yeah. They just take up so much space. So he could amass a lot of it at home right? before he had to take it oh, and, wow. and sell it. So there was a lot of kind of design considerations just even in his business. So I think, you know, coming away with the idea, like, there's more, there's so many more opportunities for design than we ever can imagine. There's opportunities galore for better design. And and in situations like that, like, he's he's probably quite aware of some of the aspects of his own design. Mm -hmm. And then some of it is just pure reactivity to the ch- constant changes that are probably happening mm-hmm. in, in ways that he can get money or whether the price changes in one thing or sure. shifts to another thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So he's he, pure curiosity that there's people like him all over the world, you know, uh, absolutely that are on the one hand doing the best they can with what they've got. And yeah. on the other hand, um, if you analyze what they're doing, you think, Oh God, if they just had, this tiny bit of information mm-hmm. about, you know, X, Y, Z, other way to do things, it could be so much better for them. Yeah. Right? And so I think that, you know, that, like having kind of access to that work. At the same time, um, in grad school, um, so overlapping with that, I had access to a uh, um, thinker, creator, amazing person, mentor, um, Dr. Helzine Openen. And she is one of the very rare people in life who, she's a PhD economist. I mean, she did industrial economics. Is she at? Um, is she at, at oh, the Humphrey. Humphrey? She was a visiting lecturer at the Humphrey just for three years. So we just, just lucked oh, out. Like, wow. Um, but her real passion actually was, um, was really around uh, gender, inclusion, um, the very rural poor in India and how poor rural women with micro, micro enterprises, how do they make better decisions in life mm-hmm. about their business, about their life? Like what, what does that process look like for them? Yeah. And she did um, really in-depth longitudinal studies around this and really – Came up with something I think is not surprising, or maybe it's totally surprising. I'm not sure, but it turns out that they make decisions the way that you and I make decisions. Yeah, we look at the information that we have available to us. You know, we make a decision, and then it maybe goes the way that we think it, it will go, or it doesn't, and then we evolve it. Yeah, um, and make new decisions. The problem is for them, and for many of the world's poor, just you know, many people that aren't here in America where we have access to broadband and really amazing, you right. know, data services for everything. Yeah. 
is that they just don't have access to information. Mm-hmm. So they're not literate, so they don't have access to even their own information in a way of like keeping a logbook or haven't ever been trained in that. Yeah. Or um, maybe they are literate, but nobody's ever taught them how to keep and use their own information um, in, in ways that are meaningful. Mm-hmm. And so she really introduced this idea of everybody has the capacity Every person. If this is not a literacy, no literacy conversation. Yeah. Everybody has the capacity to look at what's happening in life and make meaningful choices when they're supported to do that. And so she developed a, a way to do that with low literacy people um, using primarily pictures, illustrated communication, mm-hmm. so just black and white kind of technical illustrations because yeah. I'm a little bit cartoony, yeah. um, and really simple marks circles, checks, hash marks, just really simple mark making that allows people to track what's actually happening in life. Yesterday, how many servings of vegetables (laughs) did I eat? Yesterday. Not like last year approximately how many times did you have green beans? Yeah. I don't know. But I can tell you that yesterday as like an average sample of life, you know, my eating looked like this. Right. Right. And then you can get some more accurate information. And if you do that four times, you now have some amount of pattern. And yeah. you can say, what do you, what can you say now? Looking at these four times, what can you say about your actual eating habits? So does it start out with, you need to know what you're going to be tracking in the first place, I guess, right? Yeah. So each, um, each project really has multiple components to it. While they're all integrated a bit seamlessly for the user, um, they look really simple. These these di- we call them yeah. diaries. They look really yeah. simple, but they're actually really complex. So yeah. inside them, um, one is a quantitative survey. So you're actually surveying. These are survey questions, like how many times did you eat that, or um, on a scale of one to five, you know, how confident are you in your response to this, mm-hmm. right? So um, underneath it is really a quantitative survey. L- layered on top of that is learning, right? Mm-hmm. If you give somebody, even um, anybody that here that has answered a PHQ-9, like the personal health questionnaire to measure your level of depression, right? Right. It's an intervention in and of itself. You know, asks nine questions, right? You you score them, but then any reasonable person is going to come away going, I am tired. Yeah. You know what? I have been grumpier than usual lately. If you get asked the question often enough, you're sort of like, Huh. I had, I had, and, and a lot of times it'll, they'll just be different ways of answering the same question. Right. right? And you're like, I'm going to change my, I'm going to change my answer this time. Like I've, maybe, maybe I have been struggling with this thing. <laughs> right. Or, or you, you're not conscious of it. And then your physician or a friend says, Hey, you know, last time I'm just noticing, but last time you answered this, life looked a little bit happier. Like what's happened. Right. Yeah. So that's the meaningful use of data. Gotcha. Right. So um, inside that, though, inside any question is inherently some learning, right? And there's an opportunity to envision something. Yes, my house is – I'm right now living in a thatch and mud house, and I really do want to live in that concrete house mm-hmm. with the, the, you know, tile roofs. Right. How do I get there? Oh, look, here's five questions that are going to actually tell me the steps to get there. Without telling me that there's steps to get there, I'm yeah. going to say, oh, the next step is, like, get a solid door. The next step is get iron sheets. And the next step might be, you know, make the – move from just mud to – 
plaster or something a little bit more resilient, right? And, and it can even kind of like trigger maybe like a, a, a sense of confidence, like, oh, I didn't think I would, could do this thing, but now I think now that I think I can do this thing, I'm going to also do the next exactly. thing. Exactly. Now that I can see that there's actually steps that I can achieve, yeah. like from here to there, it doesn't seem so big. That's so inside each, you know, kind of page or question there, there are, there are these kind of learning elements, there's aspiration elements, there's visioning elements. Um, the whole kind of piece of it is um, held within a metaphor for life. And so what that metaphor looks like is different um, for each one. I've seen like, you know, um, growing your knowledge grows your garden, growing your garden grows your life. Um, so mm -hmm. you can, you know, which is like ties like literacy and financial literacy to your garden, which ties it to nutrition and mm -hmm. family well-being. Yeah. You know, so usually there's like an overall kind of story yeah. to them. So Dr. Nopening really invented, you know, kind of the the thinking around that. It's like creating, creating like, it's almost kind of like a, a mantra for your own life, but it's this, it's mm -hmm. like you're, you're, you're uh, outlining your own story in the in the process or something. Exactly, and they're highly customizable. I mean, you know, like what you want for your life is different than what I want yeah, for right, my life, right. or what your resources right now are very different from mine. And so there, there's a lot of ways to customize, like within that, like you know, what is the like given these twenty things that are kind of typical goals for someone in your life position. Mm -hmm. Which one do you want to attend to in the next three months? Yeah. And then what resources are you going to bring to that goal? So if you're going to attend to the fact that you and your husband don't speak, yeah, and this woman is going to attend to the fact that she doesn't have access to water, those are both really common goals for a particular community. Yeah. Really different actions. And they're both, they both will do great things, right? Yeah. They'll yeah. both do great things in their, in their life. And so it's not my, it's not my decision to say, you know what you really need? You really need access to water. I think you, yeah. access to water is the thing that you need first before you, yeah. like, who am I to say that? Yeah. Well, this is, it's interesting because I, I really started this podcast out of uh, some work that I was doing with the doctor about how we do, I mean, there's a lot of different aspects of what we did, but the thing that became most interesting to me and I think to both of us in some ways was how we do intake, mm -hmm. which is kind of the same yeah. thing, right? And in a way, the intake can teach you something about yourself. Mm -hmm. And what we started to, what we started realizing and what we wanted to do more development with was we, we know that people have different belief systems around how they believe they're going to get better mm -hmm. or how they're going to stay well or whatever it is that we're working on. It's not up for, for us to say, you need to have optimum health that looks like this, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, but that's, you know, it's constantly in the New York Times you know, science mm -hmm. and wellness sections where we're kind of like, we're, we're getting fed the same, these kind of stories like you're talking mm -hmm. about. And so then we try to achieve into that story with, mm -hmm. without sometimes really being, you know, having, having the right, maybe, I don't know what the word is, but it, your idea of design is why I wanted to talk to you because mm -hmm. I think we do need to almost kind of get better about designing our own lives and, and really kind of mm -hmm. understanding these these belief systems that we hold yep. and then having some process to, right. to, yeah. to move into them. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I think that it's really important. Designing and designing, you know, always starts with kind of the same pieces, which is, you know, when you look at design thinking or HCD, you know, there there's 
these are not new things. These are things that humans have done, you know, oh, throughout yeah. time. Yeah. It's just a codification of, of kind of the thought process that, yeah. that people go through. And a little bit of, a, you know, saying, well, there's an actual process to it, right? But the very first part of, of most of those is, you know, understanding or empathy. Like, we have to actually understand what is actually happening. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, you know, going back to your point of the, earlier of the kids that, you know, come in with the sensory, you know, issues and, you know, the natural kind of response is limit screen time. Maybe. Let's look. Yeah. Like, that might not be the problem. The actual amount of screen time may or may not be the problem. Yeah. There might be, like, thousands of ways yeah and, and i hear it all the time because there's so many so many people that they come in and they their their top things as parents are you know both screen time with these new devices and with us it was television right i right. mean with everyone thought yeah. it was going to like kill our brains clearly but <laughs> you know it's it there's 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 uh there are different layers to this in terms of like the the person who is actually doing the watching, what are they looking for in, mm-hmm. in, in the first place? You know, it's, you yeah. know, there, and there are different, you know, I, I, I've tried to deal with this. I'm sure you're dealing with this with your kids too, but, but my, but the, the, the idea that they can be used for different purposes mm-hmm. and that there are, there are times when it's okay to, to not have it be something that's like constructive. And, uh, yeah. And then there are times when, you know, if, if, if you're, if you're only using this device for non-constructive things is when it starts to become a problem because it, it you know, the, the, the direction that we start to sort of like trigger our response to different mm-hmm. things over and over again becomes the, 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 you know, the main path that we've yeah. worn in there. Yeah. But approaching it from, like you said, like from the New York Times headline of, you know, children of today have yeah. too much screen time. Right. Like, that's not necessarily useful. And so inside of, you know, kind of the design approach would be to say, you know, for my child or in general, like if you want to generalize, you know, what's the problem with that? Like, where is the actual problem? Because that screen time or too much screen time or two hours of screen time a day, is it a problem? Why is it a problem? Is it a problem because they're not getting exercise? Is it a problem because, you know, because then there's things like go noodle where it's screen time and exercise all in one package, right? So Mm -hmm. like, what does that do? Is it because it lights up the brain in a different way? Okay. Like, is it necessarily a bad thing? I mean, I'm not a doctor, so, you know, like I'm just asking questions, right? But these are the kind of like the process that I would go through would be to just mercilessly ask questions. Where is the problem exactly? You know, and and so tell me tell me what the process is of of breaking that down. Just I mean, this is partly me asking as as like someone who goes through this on a daily basis with people that I work with, and mm-hmm. you know, clearly with my children. But it but that there's so you so you as you as you break this down, I kind of want to get into what your your company picture impact. Mm-hmm. the kind of work that you're doing so how do you how how do you break that down to the phase to, to the, the the part that's about problem mm-hmm. so sometimes i mean sometimes we're actually given a problem that isn't the problem right i, that's I mean I that's figured, almost yeah. always the case um so like this like, like the screen time example right yeah, like the screen time example. Um, but like, in, like can, tell me, tell me, mm-hmm. uh, like another maybe. What what are you working on right now? Um, if you can share, yeah, then I can disclose. <laughs> I'm like, which one can I disclose? Or, or, or something that you've done. You know, um, well, I mean, a, a general kind of problem um, that we hear a lot and we we see a lot um, is adolescent girls and young women hmm. um, 
are not doing what we, development, government, teachers, parents, <laughs> whatever, yeah. what we think they should. Gotcha. In regard to, and, you know, the, there's a variety of problems, but, yeah. you know, in, in regard specifically, oftentimes in development, it's in regard to um, health-seeking behavior, sexual reproductive health, um, understanding of their relationship with boys and what they can do around gender violence. Mm-hmm. Um, so adolescent girls and young women aren't doing what we say, <laughs> what yeah. we think is best. Yeah. Um, and so we want them to do that. How do we do that? And who, who would be approaching you in a situation like this? Um, like governments, a, development programs. Education systems um, or... Yeah, we, I mean, we mostly work in international development. So we are mostly working with the big NGOs who are working for USAID or DFID or one of the other development um, agencies who are then working kind of on behalf of or with governments to, you know, say, hey, there's this shocking problem of, you know, teen pregnancy or um, HIV transmission rates were really low and now all of a sudden they're higher. We don't understand what happened. How come girls aren't listening anymore? Right. And so given that question, girls are not engaged in health-seeking behavior. Mm-hmm. How can we get girls engaged in health-seeking behavior? Okay. Like that's a valid set of questions. Right. It is. And there's a lot of space for that. We might say let's back it up again like a little bit. Yeah. And tell me a little bit about the girl's world. How many decisions can she make? What yeah. kinds of things can she make decisions about? Does she actually have access to healthcare if she were seeking it right is there a complication around menstrual pads or um how does she get from home to school does Mm -hmm. she walk by herself is there a you know an opportunity for her to be preyed upon by a boy um not even necessarily in a bad scenario but girls like to be cool too like they want to be cool and attractive they want to be the you know the I, I I was uh, I, I know someone in New York who I can't remember where which uh, country he was working in in Africa, but he was involved in this project which was trying to get bicycles to young girls, for exactly what you're talking about because one of the issues that a lot of them had is that they were walking five miles sometimes sure. ten miles to school every day, so they'd become preyed upon as they got tired. So mm-hmm. they would the predators would know exactly the spots at which they would right. be more likely probably three miles in, you know, oh, that the the next seven miles is going to be really tough or the next two miles, depending on where you're at. So they started realizing that if they got them bicycles and they were dealing with the same thing, they were dealing with, with rape and pregnancy and, and STDs. Yeah. So, I mean, they, so they're in that case, it's a solution for, it's a solution for one. Right. Exactly. And there might be like 20 or 40 or 200 or 5,000 solutions. And so we, you know, in our process, first, you know, given a challenge, we might back it up a bit and say, is that the actual challenge? Like, mm-hmm. we just want to verify, is this the challenge that we're actually trying to solve? Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes we might go backwards and get a little bit big, right? So in <clears throat> in design, we kind of think about, you know, um, going from specific to more abstract, you know, going from really concrete to um to that little bit more general, um, bigger thinking. We think about divergent thinking versus convergent thinking. So we want to first get really big. 
Explain the difference between divergent and convergent thinking. Yeah, so divergent means to go apart Mm -hmm. and convergent means to come together. Okay. So generally, like, what we want to say is, you know, oftentimes we're we're kind of faced with something that's a little closer to a solution than a problem, right? right? And so we want to say, let's back that up. Let's get a little bit bigger about it first. Um, So we want to take anything that we're given and get a bit big with it. Um, so what are what does it look like? You know, what are all the the scenarios around it? We we have lots of tools in that toolbox. Yeah. Systems mapping and immersive observation and you know playing games and using pictures and you know so they, I mean any yeah. any tool that can elicit information. Getting really is broad like, with it to start yeah, out with, right? And and within some bounds yeah you know we do have some bounds we have lines of inquiry and things like that things that we think we're There's looking tested for. things that you know are going to get you certain sure. kind of information but we want to get really really big and then our our company um we really focus on a, a technique that's called grounded theory which means once we get really big and we've had all this information mm-hmm. we don't make any decisions about the information first like we, we're not going to say oh we're going to put this into a two by two matrix or we think that this is going to be this framework Mm-hmm. We try to look at the information and see what it's telling us first. Um, and so we do that um, generally through a process of um, participatory meaning making, which means that anybody that was involved in generating the information, so people that did field research with us, maybe even some people that are in this situation, yeah, yeah. ideally some users or um, people from the NGO, so people that are kind of intimately involved in it, we all come together. We look at the data. We look at the actual data, not our assumptions about the data, yeah. not our thoughts about it, but right. what actually does the data say? Yeah. We group it. We sort it. We color code things. <laughs> you know, so um, we generally come up with some really big ideas out of that, and sometimes we come up with a lot of insight out of that that just naturally comes up. Yeah. Um, so we capture all of that. Then we start to narrow. So that's part of the process of narrowing is to say, what are the themes that are emerging? What do we, can we see really obviously? What is this trying to say to us about that challenge that we started with? Yeah. What's starting to emerge as either a particular design challenge? You know, what's like a really specific thing that we could name? Or um, what's starting to emerge as a possible solution mm-hmm. like to that challenge. So sometimes a solution will emerge there. So that's where that, that convergent, you're coming back together, you're getting it smaller, mm, you're getting yeah. it more focused until you can get down to kind of a focused nugget. This is the specific thing we're going to design to or this is the so- first solution we're going to try. Yeah. And so then after that, then you got to get big again because you've yeah. got the solution. Now you got a prototype. Now you got to test. Now you got to see like what, you know, so latrine is the solution. What does latrine look like? Maybe it's five different kinds or so you want to get a little bit big again. And then it's the process of kind of iterating and refining until you have a, a like solid product. Yeah. Right. Um, that part is like really, I think pretty common to people and they have an understanding about how yeah, you know yeah. kind of prototyping testing you eventually yeah. get it back to solve so so getting into like the design part of that where where, where do you so you so you've the, the question i had was kind of like a ways back maybe but yeah. was was trying to get down to what that problem is and mm-hmm. be able to, and be able to like, you know, narrow down enough to that, to that problem. Yeah. And then, and then I'm sure there's, the, then the design 
parts start, which is part of what you're just talking about, which yeah. has to be testing and yeah. And it is. I mean, I, I find that the design. I mean, it's I, it may it also just be the nature of of our company and the way that we think. Um, somewhere in the mess. I mean, this, this big mess of um, context and understanding at the beginning. You know, when we've gotten things really, really big, it's super messy. Um, and then the sleuthing phase starts, right? Yeah. You're kind of... Inside the mess, there's often insight, and you can feel it in your body. Yeah. And there is a um, there's a design uh, thinker and writer um, by the name of John Calco that talks about. Um, he's written a, a book called Embracing the Magic of Design, but he also talks about like being literally immersed in the mess of it. That something happens like in your body. There's a knowing is there but may not be obvious and that yeah. this is the part that's like seems unscientific to I, outsiders. I, I think I, I might have some idea of what, I mean just because I I've been I've you know I've been doing this for my, my yeah. practice for 20 years and I think there's it's also the longer you've been in it I think you in, you innately pick up on patterns it's almost like you might not you, you might not have made the connection yet in your head mm-hmm. but somehow there's something that keeps resonating over and over again mm-hmm. you're like kind of like oh i felt this i've seen this before i think there was something this seems this seems familiar and you're not mm-hmm. sure what it is but you also kind of have this sense that it went this direction before and so you can kind of like start to i mean that's this is a very unscientific way of doing things but i i do have this sense that that's probably the same thing that happens in design in general yeah i mean i would say that there is this intuitive sense that happens inside the mess i would also say there's actually quite a lot of rigor there so it it isn't like people are like oh i just had this like you know sense it's like um it it's allowing our brains to do this magical thing that our humans brains can do they think and process faster than we can grasp it's like the uh, the malcolm gladwell book blink did you ever read that it's like you are you're you're processing thousands millions of bits of data yeah and to pull it out into consciousness actually takes quite a bit right and so when you're sitting in in the data and looking at it there's a part of you that's like oh i know what this is yeah i can start to see it then the work is to confirm it to validate it right right? so you're pulling it out and saying i think it's this does that seem right Mm mm-hmm that's where in our work, it's super useful to have people that are in the context of it, right? So what, if you're going to work with adolescent girls from rural Ghana, you better have adolescent girls from rural Ghana that are reality checking your assumptions, yeah. you know, because I'm white and I live in Minneapolis and I'm <laughs> educated and yeah. I'm really, while I might be able to look at the data and say the data is saying this, does that seem true to you? Yeah. Tell me about, you know, how that fits. And yeah. then they can speak their story. Yeah, that fits. Or, no, that's like you've got it kind of wrong. Or, yeah, I can kind of see that, but also this other part, yeah. you know, right? So we do a little bit of that, reality checking in that in that space. And oftentimes inside that mess and inside those conversations, um, new things start to occur, right? Yeah. Somewhere I have a piece on collaboration and, you know, we uh, we struggle with collaboration as humans. But I, I really like this. It's like a little phrase, and it's talking about collaboration is the thing that happens when multiple people are in a room and something arises that no single one of them could have come up with, yeah. right? And that's what we're always It's kind of this, this thing where you're, I mean, this, I, I'm going to relate to my band days, but it, there's almost kind of like 
the reason that bands work or don't work a lot of times is because, and this is true of any collaboration, I think, but there's, there's this kind of like tension and conflict and unison, like some things you see eye to eye on in mm-hmm. some places you have conflict, but somehow there's a convergence that starts to happen because of all these different dynamics and in, yep. in, in collaboration. Yeah. So I think, I mean, in there, like you said, like in there, the problem gets really clear or problems Sometimes it's more than one. Yeah. Become really clear. And then um, if it's more than one problem, we can sometimes see a solution that crosses multiple problems. Mm. That's, oh, I mean, that's, yeah, that's beautiful, interesting. magical thing. Yeah, yeah. Where you're like, oh, that would solve like both those problems. Yeah. The other, some of the other things that we're always looking for that I think are a little bit unique um, in our perspective or just maybe, um, I mean, it's, who you're, it's what you're designing for. But one of the things in designing for sustainability is we're interested in um well it's fantastic to work in implementation which just means like you know really rigorous programming where there's lots and lots of touch over time mm-hmm. it's great you can do amazing things with that if you've ever worked with a coach it's like amazing right yeah. you can really propel yourself forward with that kind of individual touch yeah um but it's unrealistic to expect that that's always going to happen yeah um, and so we're always looking for what are some ways to leverage the private sector? What are ways to leverage kind of hum- natural human behavior? Yeah. What are some things that we can do? What are ways that we can insert um, change into life in a way that isn't in addition to, right? Mm-hmm. So how can we actually just like meld it in? You know, I mean, I think... It's, well, it's not our example, like the example of M-Pesa in, you know, Kenya, which is a unbanked mobile banking system that happens on your phone, right? Mm-hmm. It, it was designed and thought of like so well and has been, of course, iterated on, but it's just, it's seamless. And so even though they still, you know, people still are not banked in Kenya, you can have a mobile transaction. You've got, you know, mobile money. Right. The yeah. money sector is actually moving quite well. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty impressive. Right? And so... um so I think that, you know, we're always trying to look for ways like, you know, how can it be within something that already exists? Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's not in addition to So you're not reinventing something or inventing or, something. Or adding but... a whole bunch of energy on top. Yeah. Like, so the one of the cool things that, that, that those diaries do um, that, you know, Halsey developed. And I should say she passed away in 2012. And so uh-huh. our business is created kind of out of her work. Yeah. Um, with her blessing and her family's blessing and, and many of her friends' blessing. Um, and so the genesis of our company was very much that work and we've kind of moved it a little bit, you know, Mm -hmm. from where she had it. But the cool thing about that is, um, here I am, I have a book about my life. I'm going to interact with it, right? It's going to ask me questions about life. What kind of house do I have? How many times do I take my children to the hospital? You know, do, does my girl child go to school regularly? If Mm -hmm. she's skipping school, why is she skipping school? You know, these kinds of questions, right? So I'm tracking them because I have an inherent interest in them. Sure, the program also wants to know some of those things, mm-hmm. right? But I have an inherent interest in some of these, you know, these aspects. So I'm I'm using I'm tracking the information because I'm using the information. Gotcha. Now, a program or somebody else who maybe wants to know something different could also harvest that information, mm-hmm. right? Meaningfully. They already do that through monitoring and evaluation, which typically looks like um, a one-on-one survey where they might send a surveyor out to a woman's household and sit down with her for an hour or two hours or four hours and ask her a lot of questions that she may or may not actually readily have the answer to. Yeah. 
But we're saying, why not just look at her book? Yeah. Here she's got this like book about her life, and you could just sit side by side. She's got a lot of it, you know. I mean, if you've designed it to go with that, right? Yeah. All the data is already there, and it's it's accurate because she's using it for herself. So why would she make you know? Yeah. Why would you lie about? Does it does it cause? Do, do you have to deal with anything in terms of? Uh, I don't know what the word would be in your kind of work for us. It's like HIPAA. Yeah, ethics. <laughs> the, at the, mm-hmm. the ethical part of of getting people's information. Did, did they yeah. sort of sign on from the beginning that? they may be able to use this information for other things or how does that work? Yeah. I mean, human subjects protocol and ethics and we have a high, high ethical standard and I, I hope yeah. <laughs> I'd love to have somebody evaluate it, but we, um, we really believe that, um, consent is a, is a second by second conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Just because you've consented to being, in, being inappropriate and tracking your data doesn't mean that you've now consented to somebody coming and having a conversation and extracting the data. <laughs> right. Now that's like a different consent conversation. Yeah, and yeah. just because you consented to the conversation doesn't mean that when they get to this really pri- private question, you actually want to answer that question. Maybe you just want to skip it and say, yeah. I'm actually not going to answer that question because yeah. I don't feel comfortable with that. Or I would answer, like, you know, knowing wink, I would answer that question if my husband wasn't sitting right across from me. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, sure. So consent is like, you know, it's a very dynamic process. Right. And it, you know, to have consent is really to be in relationship with somebody and to ensure that you've given them a, enough space for every single interaction, every single question that they can reasonably say no or I don't want to answer. Yeah, I, think I don't know. Very important. I mean, especially at this day and age, I think that's one mm-hmm. of those things that I think we're we're sort of facing a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. with, with our information. Yep, exactly. And if you have told somebody that their information is confidential, you better ensure that it is. Yeah. You better ensure that you don't give it to anybody that you didn't say you were going to give right. it to. So if you yeah. said it was only going to be for program, it's only for the program. Yeah. So, so we run into that a lot. I'm sure. <laughs> in our, in our work. That's why I was wondering. People that do it well and people that do it hmm, less well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where did, where yeah. did you come up with the name pic- Picture Impact for your work? Yeah, I mean, it really came out, out of um, it really came out of the work that we work with pictures, and we work around kind of impact programming. But you know, a couple of years ago, we went through a rebranding and you know a re, re- kind of Im- imagining of ourselves um, and what we were up to, and we really thought about this whole idea of picturing and and yeah, pictures, the pictures that we use. We tend to do a lot of illustrated work, mm-hmm. but also um, picturing your life. Like you can't make change unless you can envision something different yeah. and you can't make change unless you can see what's happening now. Yeah. So it's really that, you know, encompassing kind of the vision of what is happening now. What can I see that I can measure that I can manage and what kind of change can I see for the future? Um, so we decided to keep picture impact. And, and, and define impact programming. Like what would, how do you, yeah. So impact really has to it? do with the fact that, um, you know, you're 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 creating cause there is cause and effect everywhere um you know if if our 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 diaries they're not um our work is not neutral like like an evaluation might be or you're somebody coming from the outside and asking a whole bunch of questions about you and you know your participation in a program because in our work there is learning and visioning and change, taking action. It's not neutral. Like you're yeah. and you're starting to, you know, work on your life and it's impacting your life. So yeah. it's about the impact in people's, you know, personal life. It's also about measuring impact, which is very different than measuring outcomes or mm. outputs. 
Like you can say how many people went to a training. Maybe 500 people went to a training. Maybe only one of them changed their life from it. Right. Gotcha. I'm more interested in impact than in how many. And then is there a way for them again to like, as they're going through this to sort of understand the impact? I mean, I'm sure there's a broad, like there's, cause because it's, because what we're dealing with here is like life. It's not, mm-hmm. we're not always just dealing with like, there may be one specific problem or challenge that we're trying to address, yep. but it's, but it's, there are ripple effects of all yeah. the things from that. How do you, how do how do you get that information or how do they get that information for themselves? Yeah. I mean, you know, so some of Halsey's work, um, uh, two kind of interesting things that she measured in her work. One was with the group that was, um, the work was actually around loan use. Um, mm. So loan utilization and microfinance. How are women using the loans that they get for their life? Does it go to their husband? You know, all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. And when she originally like designed the project, she um, put in the questions that she put in and then she asked the women about, you know, what, it, what do you think? And they said, well, you've missed this really important question about our life. Like, cause you know, we have really high mm. domestic violence and you didn't ask us about that. Ah. And she's like, Oh, you want me to, that seems really personal. Like you want me to ask about their life? They're like, well, that's a really important part of our life and it's an yeah. important part of our loan utilization. And she's like, okay. So they put that question in and just by asking a question about domestic violence at home over the course of that program, not only their loan utilization changed, but their domestic violence went down by 23%. So if people can, if women... So awareness up for themselves. Well, for themselves, but also in in groups. Yeah. Like where women can be like, oh, I see your book. Like you're you're in that situation too. Uh Like, well, and you're in that situation? Like... Why don't the three of us get together and have a little conversation oh, wow. with our husbands? Do they, do, do they get this. together and share stuff from their books? So in then? some of in some of the programs, there's oh, a group wow. component um, to it. Um, in some of the programs, there's not a group component. But um, one of the pro- projects that we did, we thought it was so neat. It's in communities, walled communities, and um, only so such a small percentage of the community is actually in the program so mm-hmm. a small percentage got got books they were working on their books this was around um, increasing the stability of your households and so um, those households were starting to you know kind of improve and you know mm-hmm. buy a goat and have a garden <laughs> yeah. and you know their children are looking plump and healthy because they're doing breastfeeding and you know so um, the other people in the community were like, what is that book? Like, we want the book, you know, right? <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, kudos to these, this community, but they really got that. It doesn't, it's not the, like the book is just, it's knowledge, right? right? And so they were handing their books over the wall and saying, let me tell you the story of this book. And they were walking them through the kind of components of the book in order to kind of share, like knowledge is free. Yeah. Like I can just share my knowledge with you, and then it's, you can go and make of, change in your own life. So, sort of what I was saying earlier, where I, I've, I kind of, I hit, end, apparently, I've hit a, hit an endpoint with nonfiction, where it's like the story starts to give me more, I don't know, insight into certain kinds of things that I'm probably dealing with in my life mm-hmm. daily, or even in my work daily, that I might not be getting by reading, you know, dry text. Right. all the time you know and i'm i'm constantly looking for like new research and yep. things going on yep. but in even conversations like this like getting your story i i sit with each of these episodes sometimes for a long enough period of time that i just like the the story of it all starts to become like my education too yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's that impact piece, right? Yeah. So yeah. you get, I mean, so people are impacted by their own information. They're impacted collectively by seeing somebody else's story is the same story. Yeah. Um, another group of women saw that they all didn't have access to water, yet the local, pu- the person that was running for the local office um, kept saying that water everywhere in his district, he'd, you know, gotten water for everybody in his district. And they're like, excuse me, um, we don't have water. <laughs> <laughs> so they went to his office and said, we're, we're going to expose you. We've got it written in our books. Like we've got this huge group of people that all are reporting that we don't have access to water and we're going to expose you. And he said, oh, let's get you access to water. <laughs> so, so people can kind of collect, you know, do things collectively when you can actually start to track and see and, and share information in that way. Oh, Both like yeah. learning information, but you're actually like your specific market knowledge, not our project, but another project where these farmers are all, um, producing market vegetables, right? So cucumbers and tomatoes and onions and things like that. And if you go to any market in anywhere across pretty much all of Africa, yeah. you'll see the same set of vegetables, right? Yeah. So when everybody like to my point, you know, about the waste dump, when everybody is selling vegetables at the same time, they have a lower margin, yeah. right? Cause it's not competitive. So this group of, you know, farmers all in this area, they were going to start this market vegetable program and they collectively got together and staged it. Like if you're going to grow tomatoes, I'm not going to grow tomatoes now. I'm going to grow onions. You're going to grow tomatoes now. You're going to grow onions later. I'm going to grow the onions now. I'm going to grow tomatoes later. And then I'm going to grow cucumbers when, you know, and so they, this whole group got together and said, collectively, if we transition Mm. it, first of all, we'll have as a group, We'll have tomatoes longer than anybody else has tomatoes in the season. Yeah. And then secondly, I'm not competing against you because you're my neighbor. I don't want to compete against you. Yeah. I want us to work together to stage things so that we all win. Yeah. And they did that by having access to market information, to log books. That's that's cool. Information really, like access to information and, and not just access to the information, but some amount of training and some amount of thought around how do you use that in order to make change. Yeah. If I go to Weight Watchers and all I do is just weigh myself, it's probably not going to help. But if I'm going and I'm getting feedback on like, oh, your weight went up, your weight went down, like what are you doing? Share your story. Like let me, let us hear your inspiration. You're you're engaged in this this whole process too. In the meaning making, which is, you know, like the second part. So first, first humans are natural designers and secondly, we want to make meaning out of everything, right? And so when we're given tools to make good meaning like if i can assess a kind of a value to it right but to make meaning out of things in a way that allows us to foster change for ourselves or for society with good meaning good meaning maybe maybe just means like the way you wanted things to be designed in the first place i mean so which brings me to the thought that i had for you is like you know sort of like i was saying with the with the podcast like spending time with these subjects and many of them now <laughs> is there some for, for as a in a personal way for you what has been your personal picture impact from doing this work i mean part of it it actually is just um owning design as a expertise actually um a bit of a natural designer. I grew up in a family where yeah, I'm um, thinking of grandma. I'm thinking so like this. My grandmother, super... my mom, who is like a superhuman yeah. single parent 
for whom nothing was ever off the table as far as like doing or making or fixing or learning, you know, um, dishwasher broken. She's just like, well, we're just going to like take a look inside. (laughs) We literally had an appliance repairman and when she'd call him, he would be like, well, have you touched it yet? Like, have you tried to fix it yet? Right? She's like, um, no. (laughs) He's like, I totally know you. (laughs) Right? So we fixed things. We made things. Everything, you know, is just like, I don't know. How do you make that? Like, how do you do that? So, you know, growing up that, you know, that was so much, so much part of my life that I, it's been really a long journey to figure out that that's actually not part of everybody's life. Mm, yeah. That that's actually unique kind of to design. It's unique to me, even as a designer, it's, I have a particular, you know, relationship with it. And then, you know, having gone to, a um, an art school, solidly conceptual art, Cooper Union is like, you know, the height of conceptual art, um, something as base as design was a bit um there's a there's a relationship right yeah. there's a there's a long standing kind of a bit of an antagonistic relationship between you know designers and craft and you know it's like thought of as this like craft right and right. then fine art and i let that poison my mind for a really long time mm. also because that's that's really just around a very narrow slice it's just this narrow slice of design and what designers can yeah, do and how yeah. designers think and what design even means. And when you look broadly at this like picture of design, you know, as I started, as we started doing, you know, picture impact and, you know, um, working with two people who are, who are designers also, but don't come from a design background. Yeah. Don't have that. It's really allowed me to open up and say, actually I am a designer. It, great designer and design strategist and i love that part of life and is that and I, what i was thinking is like you being so involved in this process with I'm, I'm different dynamics all the time and different challenges that it must make you sort of hyper aware of like how you are also in your own life sure. you're probably not doing the same kind of like diaries or whatever but it's all it's all built into the yeah but it is a constant question like you know um for example i think you know recently i had some health challenges and um my physician recommended that i go on a low histamine diet so i go home and i look at that diet and i'm like oh i don't i do not i don't want that diet that diet looks like it will suck yeah that will be awful yeah because that's like Take all the things out that paleo people can't eat, you know, and then then also take out eggs and also take out, you know, half the fruits that are, like, normal to this area. And then no nuts all, also. And, I mean, it's just like, no, 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 yeah, no, yeah. until you get to a set of, like, you know, 20 or 30 things that are, like, good to go, <laughs> right? And um, I'm a lifelong chef. I love to eat and cook. And so in the past, the same, that same thing has come up, right? Like, this, this... This kind of diagnosis, this is not a new diagnosis. Okay. This diagnosis yeah. has happened in different ways right. for about 25 years, gotcha. right? And I've just ignored it or I've kind of done it or I've done it for a while and then I've decided, well, I don't need to do that anymore because I'm like cured. I'm better now. Right? I'm better now. It's all good. Um, so, but this time I was like, okay, I can, I can do this. Like, 
I can design a life around it. I can figure it out. Like I can figure this, you know, nugget out, right? If I can, you can test you know. it a little bit, and it's sort of like what you were doing in in a way. It's like well, it is all. It's it, all. It a might not be a hundred percent perfect to start out with, but you got to try some different for sure. things. I was terrible this morning. I had donut holes, and I felt immediately <laughs> terrible. And I was right. like, "Wow, I feel immediately." This is like my feedback loop, right? Eat off of the plan. <laughs> immediately terrible and i was like wow that was like so you know it's just as important to do it sometimes i feel sometimes like sometimes yeah. because you forget you're yeah. like you know it's everything's going really well you're like oh i feel really great you know blah 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 i'm gonna eat this donut and then you're like oh i remember why i was like totally not eating donuts yeah. like clear <laughs> <laughs> don't recommend donut hole is the you know is the, is the cheat it's <laughs> really a terrible one it's the cheat for most diets, actually. It, bacon and donuts are, you know, pretty human, you know. So where, where, where is where's Pitcher Impact going now with, you know, do you guys have, like, any are you guys finding things that you really want to, like, focus more on in terms of subject matter or challenges or anything? Um, I mean, we, you know, so one of the things is that um, as a company, this is very unusual, and we've really been pushing for it in, in our industry, which is very... Um, technical expert heavy so we're always asked but what technical areas Uh, you know are you guys in ag or you know health are you maternal and child survival are you you know interested in finance or you know like what's what's your thing are you gender is you know like yeah and we're like no we're actually process experts Uh. So more and more we want to um, hone our process expertise and and hold up process as Mm -hmm. a valuable set of expertise that crosses many different types of I think that's great. So that allows us to kind of think across the box, right? So think across multiple lines to integrate lots of different ideas. To us, it's kind of strange that there's nutrition and agriculture and livelihoods, and those aren't actually all the same thing called helping people live a great life Mm -hmm. and so we naturally see integration and we want to really bring kind of bring that up so i think inside our industry some of the work that we have to do um, is elevating design um, and the design process and what the designer's mindset is and why that is important we find a lot of work needs to be done around participatory meaning making and why that is important to do, why it's important to make meaning with others and not just like sit here with the data set and yeah, make meaning over here. Right, right. Um, we, you know, are finding a lot of, of work to do around elevating integration and thinking across and thinking when can something do multiple things. Yeah. Yeah. Our industry is not organized towards that. Our industry is organized towards, you know, silos and boxes and, you know, having things cross functions is very challenging, but it is moving and we're really excited about it. I think, I think people will see more of, of that. I feel like that's, that's a big thing that's starting to happen. I I, I can see you guys being, I mean, we're little fish, right? We're not pushing the, I don't want to like say that we're pushing the industry right now, but, but we definitely see that there's a rise in interest around, um, how do we use design? How do we understand better? How do we iterate and adapt and have things be more flexible so that we can actually deliver impact, yeah. deliver effective programming? Yeah, and, and if you're having success, I mean, this is the one thing that silos sometimes don't allow for. Like, I, I feel very lucky in my career that I've been able to stay outside of the silos <laughs> because I now work from, you know, with babies and before maybe in some situations to, you know, 
hundred year olds. And the, and the nice thing about that is I get to, I get to like work with multi-generations of people within families and in a way that's like very intimate. I get to spend a lot of time with them over the course of a number of years and getting that kind of information is something that doesn't happen in, in these silos. And I, and I feel very lucky that I didn't like decided, you know, I was really kind of doing more like sports, sports medicine, orthopedic type work to start out with and transitioned into doing pediatric work. And now uh, there's crossover happening with some of that stuff. And that's, it's allowing me to do all yeah. sorts of things. Yeah. It's exciting. I mean, I do think that there is a lot more tolerance to today. Yeah. I have some kind of seasonal allergy and I'm now I'm on a mission to find out like, really, really, or yeah, like what else is going on? Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sure, we can have seasonal allergies, totally. But we might be very stressed, or we might have just yeah. gone through a divorce, or exactly. you know, all these different things that we can that are all, all part of these exactly. complexities. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, some of the things that I was facing that led me to go to the doctor in the first place, and like literally, like my, you know, other than the low histamine kind of um, eating suggestion, you know, literally, like my therapy right now is breathing four times twice a day <laughs> like, i know i'm breathing in and out all the time it's, it's an essential part of living isn't it right but just intentional breathing and um that has made a a 20 point um shift um that's made a 20 point shift in my blood pressure I, like wow. blood pressure has always been very low and it like recently has been creeping up and i'm like oh my gosh it's like stress it's so much work you know, so I've just, all I've introduced is breathing. I haven't even been exercising or anything. I'm just breathing and eating a little bit better. And, like, it's made a huge difference. So Wow. Well, thanks for taking the time to do this with me. This was really fun. I can't wait to follow you guys and, and see where yeah. you go with all this. Yeah, it'll be fun. All right, thanks. Katrina Mitchell, folks. Glad I put my thinking cap on for this one. Some serious positive thought leadership going on with this group. I love what they're doing. It's so important to remember that if we don't agree with our current direction, we need to step back, get big for a minute, and envision what we'd like to see. Then we need to break it back down and find the problems, figure out where we can start in some small ways to make an impact. I struggled with this in my personal and creative life and in my entrepreneurial endeavors because I've always been a big picture person, but I often struggle with where to start or how to overcome a challenge when, when it arises. I'm happy to know a group like Picture Impact exists. I feel like I, I can already think of a, a number of organizations I'm involved with who could really use their design help. Thanks for tuning in as always. Keep the thoughtful correspondence coming in. I always love to hear from our listeners. Enjoy these dog days of summer. Hope you can uh, make some space and, and check out for a bit. Disengage. I give you permission. Be good to yourself, be kind to each other, and take care of your planet. Be well, my friends. If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our author shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Hopeful Hints, hosted by Dr. Tara, guides and supports those on the often challenging and isolating journey of women's health concerns and infertility. There's a particularly powerful episode that you should check out called All Things Endometriosis, which dives deep into understanding the condition 
to help the many women who suffer from endometriosis and have no idea they have it, and healthcare providers who are uneducated about it, making the diagnosis process so difficult. Check out Hopeful Hints on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.